Okay, we're going to look at our scripture, John 13, 21 through 38, that can be found on the back of the bulletin or in the scriptures. This is Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he has some uh, words, some very sober words to say to them. Uh, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Well, if I was to ask you what the most powerful force in the world is, I wonder how you would answer some people might say it's plutonium, it's uh, radioactive materials, the power to split the atom uh, that creates tremendous energy and force. Some who are a little more cynical might say that it's money, because with money comes power, the ability to influence and the ability to manipulate. But I think if we honestly examine the answer, we will come up with the answer that the most powerful force in the world is love. Love is the most powerful force in the world because it's love that has the power to change the human heart. Think about your own experience and your own history, how you've been molded and shaped and what the power of love has had in your life. It was Mother Teresa that said the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. When we look to the world, to ask the question, what and where is love? The world gives us many counterfeit images of what love is. But in this passage, Jesus tells us what love looks like and how we are supposed to love one another. 
and he shows us how to recognize love. The way he does it is very interesting. I remember when I was buying a diamond ring for my wife. And what they do when you're buying a diamond ring is they put it on black velvet, right? Because they want to contrast the diamond against the blackness. And so in the same way, this passage puts the love of Jesus on black, compares it to two of the darkest moments in Jesus's life, the betrayal of his friend Judas and the denial of his friend Peter. So we're going to look at three things as we compare and contrast love in our attempt to understand what love really is. We're going to look at the betrayal of Judas. We're going to look at the denial of Peter. And finally, we're going to look at the love of Jesus with the goal that we would really see what love is and how we are supposed to love one another. So let's look at the betrayal of Judas. We see that Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This word troubled means stirred up and agitated in the Greek. If you think of a bathtub where the water is kind of all stirred up and agitated, this is Jesus' soul. It's stirred up. It's agitated. And why is Jesus' spirit stirred up? I think there are two reasons. The first is he knows that this is the start. With Judas going out into the night, he will go and he will summon the guards and they will come and they will arrest him and Jesus will be crucified. But I think his spirit is also stirred up because he is going to be betrayed by one of his dear friends. Judas was a close friend of Jesus. For three years, he's been living with Jesus and the other disciples. He's been in the inner circle. And Jesus has shared his heart with all of his disciples. Yet Judas is going to turn on him. In just a, a couple of verses before, in verse 18, Jesus said, I, am, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas is quoting, excuse me, Jesus is quoting Psalm 41.9, where David talks about himself being uh, betrayed. And it says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus considers Judas his close friend, someone that he trusted. Now, I find this fascinating because Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And yet Jesus has not throughout these three years held back his love from Judas. If I knew someone was going to betray me, I would be extremely guarded in my emotions and my love toward that person. But Jesus has held nothing back from Judas, even full well knowing that Judas was going to betray him. So this pain of betrayal comes from his close friend who had received only kindness from Jesus. And so when Jesus says this, the disciples look at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table by Jesus' side. So Peter mentions over to this disciple who we know to be John, saying, ask him, who, 
Who is it supposed to be? Now, I want you to understand a little bit about the Last Supper and where people are sitting so you can understand what's going on here. In, the, um, in this time, the, the Hebrews had adopted the Roman custom of the way they would sit at important feasts. This is what is called a, a triclinium. This was the table that they would sit around. It's very different from, from Da Vinci's The Last Supper, right? Because in Da Vinci's Last Supper, uh, there would just be this, and Jesus would be seated right at the center. But around a triclinium, the seat of honor, meaning the host of the feast, would actually sit over here on the left side. This is Jesus. And he would recline this way. This is the front. And he would be on his left elbow facing this way. Now, there was an order in which people would sit around the table. The second most honored guest would be seated right here. This is John, because we know that John is reclining at Jesus' side and leans back and asks Jesus the question. The order then would be that the first most important guest would be right here, right behind Jesus. And the order of the table, it would go all the way around in lesser and lesser importance, all the way down to here of this person who would be seated near the door. This was usually a servant who might be seated here. And because of uh, Peter looking to John and asking him to ask Jesus who has betrayed him, many people believe that Peter was the person in the position of least importance, that Jesus had put him right here. And this kind of makes sense. When Jesus begins to wash everybody's feet, the job that Peter should have had and didn't have. Now, why am I showing you all of this? The reason I'm showing you is because Peter asks John to ask Jesus to lean back and ask him, who is it? And Jesus says to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Matthew 26 puts it this way, where Jesus answers, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. What that tells us is that Judas is very, very close to Jesus. He's sharing the same dish. Jesus dips the piece of bread in the bowl and gives it to Judas. What does that mean? It means that Judas is right here. Judas is the most honored guest at the feast, the one who has Jesus's back, so to speak. And I wonder, why did Jesus put Judas right there in the most honored place of the whole feast? I think it was a way in a way, Jesus was saying to Judas, Judas, I honor you. I love you. You don't have to do this. But Judas did do this. Because Judas's heart was dark. You see, on the outward, on Judas's outward appearance, 
Judas seemed like all the other disciples, didn't he? He participated in all of the different apostolic missions. There was no one that said, when, when Jesus said, someone's going to betray me, no one, they didn't start uh, uttering to each other, it's Judas. It's got to be Judas, right? Oh, it's Judas, absolutely. No, they all were uncertain. Not one of them had a clue that it was Judas. But Judas was living a double life. The reality is he did not love Jesus. He did not care about the things that Jesus cared about. He cared about himself. So what is it that Judas really did love? The answer is Judas loved money. We see uh, when, when that woman breaks the jar and pours the expensive perfume over, over Jesus' body, that Judas protested. All of this money could have been used and given to the poor. And it says in John 12, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This was a habit of Judas taking money and using it on himself. Judas loved money. In fact, he sold out Jesus for money, didn't he? 30 pieces of silver. And so here has been Jesus showing love to his disciples, washing their feet. And Judas has been there despising every single minute of it. After taking the morsel, it says, uh, Satan entered into him and Jesus said, go and do what you have to do quickly. And he immediately went out. And some of the most saddest scripture in the Bible, and it was night. It was night because it was dark outside, but it was night because it was darkness in Judas's soul. Well, what can we conclude about the betrayal of Judas? I think we can conclude a couple of things. The first is that we really do see the heart of Jesus. Jesus says to us to love your enemies. And Jesus can say that with integrity and honesty because Jesus really did that. He didn't hold back in his love for Judas. There was not an ounce of self-protection in Jesus' heart. And so in this relationship, we really can see that Jesus is patient and he's kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He's not self-seeking. He always rejoices with the truth. He always protects. He always trusts and he always hopes. But Judas causes us to examine our own hearts. There are devotions in our hearts, sometimes to other things than Jesus. As Judas was devoted to money, as Judas was devoted to the things of this world, if these things lie unconfessed and unmastered, they will ultimately destroy us. Judas was so close to Jesus how many times after seeing his grace could he have turned to Jesus and said, 
I've been living a double life. I'm a broken man. Forgive me. Help me. And Jesus would have been right there. What about my heart? Outwardly, people can't tell. But maybe inwardly, I'm playing a game. There are different motives in my heart for why I'm here. I don't love Jesus, and I don't want to. What Jesus wants in your relationship with him is sincerity, honesty, transparency. So don't let that be you. Give the devotion of your heart to Jesus. Turn to him and say, I'm broken and I'm messed up, but I want to be yours. Help me. Because he will and he'll respond. This leads me to my second point, the denial of Peter. Jesus turns to the disciples after Judas has left and he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus takes a fatherly role here as he talks to the disciples, my little children. And he's communicating to them essentially that they don't understand it, that I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be glorified and bring glory to the Father by my obedience and by, by my sacrifice of myself. And you cannot come with me because you're not able. Only I can do this. This is a journey that I have to take alone. Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus said, you, you can't go. You can't follow me now, though you will follow me afterward. In other words, Peter, you don't understand. You can't come where I'm going. But later in your life, you will. We know that Peter later in his life was, was killed, was crucified for his faith. Peter said to him in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. In other words, I will never fail you. In fact, in one of the other gospels, Peter said, even if all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow before you have denied me three times. And we know how this story ends, right? Just a couple of hours later, after this vehement protest, Peter denies that he knew, knew Jesus to a servant girl, and then to another person, and then finally to a third person, calling curses down on himself. And we have to ask the question, how did Peter miss this? How did Peter go from here to here in just the space of a couple of hours? Peter displays a gross ignorance of his human weakness. Peter fails to grasp the truth that we all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We are all flawed and broken people and look out for ourselves first. And Peter also displays a certain 
haughty independence that is the seed of the denial itself. See, the reason Jesus is going to the cross, the reason he's come as a savior is to save us from our sins. He's coming because we are betrayers and we are deniers. But what Peter is saying is, no, not me. I'm not like them. I'm like you, Jesus. I am like God. Everyone else needs grace and mercy, but not me. And when Peter was confronted with his humanity and the danger of his own skin, he caved not once, not twice, but three times. See, Jesus was saying, you think you can follow me, Peter? You won't even make it through the night because you are morally unable to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You know, it's Peter who failed, but the reality is they all failed, right? Every single one of them in one of the other gospels said, I'm not going to deny you either. When we look at Peter, we are faced with an uncomfortable reality. We like to think that I would not have not denied Jesus. I would have held true. But this is the reality, my friends. We are all like Peter or like Judas. It's one or the other. That's the only choice we have. Not me. But Jesus says you too. Do you know that? That left to ourselves, that is our heart? See, we've got to stare that in the face. Because it's only then that we can see that Jesus died for us, not because we deserved it, but because he wanted to. And because he needed it. We have to ask the question, how is Peter different than Judas in the end? Right? I mean, one betrayed, one denied, it's pretty darn similar in some ways. I'll tell you how it's different. In Luke 22, a parallel uh, gospel account, Jesus says to him, right before Peter denies, Jesus says, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Saying Satan wants you, Peter. He wants to put you in a sieve. And a sieve, if you put wheat in a sieve, that's how you separate the wheat from the chaff that by shaking it against the rag, ragged metal edges, everything falls out except for the wheat. And Jesus is saying, Satan wants to do this to you and your faith, to separate you. But he's not going to fail. Because Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. See, how does Peter not fail? How does Peter not continue on the path of Judas? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is saying to Peter, that's the direction that you will go. But I will stand in the gap for you. It's by my grace that I have called you. 
and it's by my grace that I will keep you. And we actually see this grace working in Peter's life from the very beginning after he betrays Jesus. See, Peter went out after he had denied Jesus the third time and he wept bitterly, it says. And why was he weeping? He was weeping with guilt and shame for betraying the one that he loved. See, that love for Jesus was still in his heart because of Jesus' prayers. It was his weakness that was the reason that he had denied. But Judas never felt a pang of guilt as to what he had done to Jesus. He felt plenty of remorse as to what he had done to himself, so much that he would go out and hang himself. But he never felt one pang of guilt for what he had done to Jesus. Judas experienced feelings of regret and remorse, but this is not repentance, a change of heart. And we know that Peter did turn back, right? There's that beautiful story in John 21 where Jesus comes to Peter, do you love me? And reinstates Peter. And so what lesson can we learn from Peter's denial of Jesus? It's not don't be like Peter. It's not the lesson. Because the reality is we are like Peter. The ver when Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat, he actually uses the plural in the Greek. He's actually using it to say to all of the disciples. And we are also his disciples, right? Satan has demanded to sift all of us like wheat to shake us so forcefully that our faith would fail. Satan is our accuser day and night. But Jesus prays for us. Jesus died for us and he rose again for us. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and continually intercedes for us. And so the moral of the story about Peter is this, that we must recognize, I need your grace, Jesus. Without you, I will fall away. It's not my strength. It's not my trust in you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I don't have to bring anything to you except my brokenness, my hope, and my trust. And recognize not only that I need your grace, but that I have your grace. That Jesus will never let us go. And as such, we can rest in this life. We need not fear the evil one. We need not fear our circumstances because Jesus has us in the palm of his hand. So rest in his confidence, rest in his love. And finally, use the grace of God in the way that we love God and one another. Because Jesus said to Peter, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And this gets to our final point, Jesus' love. In the midst of Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, Jesus teaches the disciples 
about love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Why does Jesus give this command right now? Well, he's announced his departure. He's told his disciples that they cannot come with him for now. And so he begins to lay out to them what he expects for them while he is away. This is how you are to love one another. And it's interesting that Jesus says, a new command I give you. Well, the command to love one another, I mean, that was in Leviticus, right? That was in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, which we read earlier. So what's new about this new commandment? It's the words, just as I have loved you. Jesus gives us a pattern for loving and a power for loving. First, the pattern. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus put this passage in between uh, Judas and Peter. See, Jesus is saying, in contrast to Judas and Peter, you are not to betray each other. You are not to deny each other. For that's not what I did to you. I could have abandoned you to your sin. I could have not gone to the cross for you, but I stood in the gap for you. My love for you was steadfast. And this is exactly what we need to do for each other. I mean, what united the disciples together anyways, right? They were from different walks of life, different classes, different histories. But it was the love of Jesus that brought them together into a group. And isn't it the same love of Jesus that unites us together as a church? We all come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different races, different cultures. But Jesus is saying to us, I want you to stick it out with each other. Which is easy, right, when there are no issues. But life gets in the way. We all have responsibilities. I mean, we would never think of overly denying one another. But we might say, you know, I just don't have time for them. They're not my care. They're not my concern. But the truth is, as we look at Jesus' command, it's the same for us as it is the disciples. He's saying that we each are to not betray or deny one another, but to love one another with a steadfast, caring love. As that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 says, love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. Love never fails. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us, with an always love. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or tongues, but with actions and in truth. So how are we doing with this? Am I living an isolated life or a connected life? Is my notion of church more than just showing up on Sunday to hear the message? The challenge of this passage is to commit to love one another as Jesus has commanded us to love. How can I do that? Well, here's some ideas. Download this app, right? Figure out who else is in the church. Put my information in. Put my hat in the ring. I'm in with you guys. And call other people. Check in with other people. Meet other people. Be involved with each other. Get involved with community groups. If you're a young person, start going to Yeti. We have a great event coming up next week, a chance to be together. Take advantage of that. We have men's group. We have lighthouse groups. But we have to examine our lives. What needs to change? Is it pri my priorities? Is it my mentality? The way I spend my time? Jesus said, this is my command, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And I finish with this point that Jesus not only gives us a pattern for love, but he gives us a power for love. This kind of love that I'm talking about is a supernatural love. But Jesus gives us the answer of how we are to love. For he says, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And that's how we are able to love each other. As he loves us. See, the love that Jesus showed on the cross continues on moment by moment, day after day through his Holy Spirit. What Jesus is really saying is, just as I continue to love you, so you continue to love one another. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and my love, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I appreciate 1 John 4, 16 that says, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. What are you relying on to get through the day? Is it the applause of the world? The love of another person? A sense of accomplishment in your work? Or is the love of Jesus Christ your lifeblood? As we abide in the love of Jesus, we will have his supernatural love to give as we love one another. When it would have been so easy for Jesus to deny us, he didn't. He died for us. And as such, Jesus gives us the pattern and the power to love one another, just as Jesus loves us. So by his grace, let us do so. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you showed steadfast love.
but you did not deny us. Lord, but you've stuck it out on the cross. And you've put a love into our hearts. And you've given us the command to love one another with the same steadfast love that you had for us. By your grace and by your spirit, help us to examine our lives, to make choices, and to begin to love in this kind of way. For by this, all the world will know that we are your disciples as we love one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.